It has, uh, it's always been interesting to me that uh, Jesus was born in such humble, incredibly humble circumstances, uh, born to a relatively poor, working class family, best we can tell, born with no human pomp or circumstance to speak of, born in a stable. Uh, we're not told of any doctors or midwives or ordinary means that would uh, be there to birth a baby. Uh, I've actually often heard it said that this showed how weak and, and just how vulnerable Jesus was in his incarnation and coming to earth. But it also occurs to me that ordinarily uh, when a woman is about to have a baby or a couple is about to birth a son or a daughter, they go to the best care they can possibly get. In our day and age, of course, it's a hospital with many specialists. Uh, we want those specialists there the best we can afford, not because we feel strong and confident, but just the opposite. It's because we feel weak and vulnerable. And we do all of that to minimize the risks as much as we can. And yet when God's son is born, uh, all the medical professionals and all the ordinary sanitary precautions uh, seem of very little concern to God the Father. Uh, else he would have had a different set of circumstances, I think. I almost get the feeling that the humble surroundings of the manger scene are a way of conveying that God the Father was so sure of himself that all the normal human precautions surrounding the birth of a baby were just not necessary. Bottom line, just not necessary. Perhaps, too, uh, what might be uh, being conveyed to us is the fact that this baby is going to be a baby who is at complete peace with himself, uh, with his father, with the circumstances surrounding his coming to earth and his mission. So capable of a leader and so able to save, he didn't need any of the ordinary precautions like doctors or midwives or sanitation. Pomp and circumstance certainly were not a part of his coming to this planet, of his incarnation. Um, all the recognition Jesus needed and all the protection he required and all that was necessary for his well-being in coming to this planet, he had in his heavenly father, not in things that human beings could provide. And this is so unlike uh, any ordinary political figure, is it not? Uh, any person in power, ordinary Political figures, whether it be kings or queens or presidents or prime ministers or chancellors or what have you, they are usually surrounded with things and with people like palaces or planes or limousines or servants providing assistance with everything, schedules, meals, travel, dress, almost anything and everything they need. And all these things constantly remind them of the, their importance and their station in life. Uh, I've heard past presidents remark about how hard it is to get used to traveling without Air Force One or without, they call it Cadillac One or the Beast. Um, all the security, all the attention that goes with presidential travel, all of that stuff serves to remind a president that he is one of the most important people on the planet. Now, I guess we could say that under ordinary circumstances, Jesus, too, was used to all kinds of special attention, right? 
Uh, Ordinarily, Jesus enjoyed round-the-clock attendance by myriads of angels, uh, myriads of people giving him praise, worshiping him, serving him, doing exactly what he tells them to do. In Revelation, the apostle John had a vision uh, of the throne room in heaven. And it says there uh, in Revelation 5, John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The descriptions we have of Jesus when he's in the throne room in heaven is one of exaltation. Uh, Jesus also in eternity past before the incarnation had always been worshiped, always been exalted, always been obeyed. He and his father and the spirit had always enjoyed perfect love, perfect relationship, perfect communion with one another. All of this is what makes his incarnation, frankly, so amazing. The Bible says about Jesus that uh, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. When I read that, I'm like, say what? I mean, how can you be God and not use that to your own advantage? That's all, that's inconceivable for a human being, but that's not inconceivable for Jesus. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus was able to go from the exalted status of the throne room to the confines of a feed trough. Think about that. And he did that willingly. He did that lovingly. He did that intentionally. You know, friends, we are so used to at this time of the year reflecting on or thinking about or hearing the story of Jesus' incarnation, the story of the events that unfold there in the manger and subsequently uh, that we can kind of yawn when we take up at this season of the year this story. But understand this story, the coming of God Almighty's Son from heaven to earth. This story was unheard of by anyone living in the first century AD. This story would have been and ought to still be shocking. The exalted almighty king becoming a humble servant to save the likes of people like you and me. Shocking. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, he's concluding some remarks that he's been making with uh, a very unusual expression of thanks there. He says this, he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable, the ESV says, inexpressible gift. Paul calls this an indescribable gift gift, referring, of course, to Jesus. And this is unusual because when you think about it, Paul was a man of many words. Words were, in fact, his business. His job was to proclaim the word being Jesus. 
Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He knew how to speak and how to debate publicly. He knew how to turn a phrase or use a metaphor or make an analogy. He, he used descriptive language. But on this occasion, when he's thinking about this gift, the gift of Jesus Christ coming from up there to down here, he couldn't find the words to do it justice, and he just called it indescribable. Some gifts are easy to describe. You ever get the gift and you're just looking at it thinking, stupid. You ever use that gift? <laughs> you ever got one of those? But some gifts, you know, that we give or that we receive are beautiful gifts. Just beautiful. Things you'll always prize. Some gifts are, they're lovely, they're costly, they're fashionable, they're practical, they're thoughtful. But Paul says this one is just plain indescribable. And part of the reason that is, I think, is because of the magnitude, the shocking nature of this gift. Now, this morning, as we enter into Advent season, I want to reflect a little bit on this gift that God has given to us so that we are not yawning through the Advent season. God, forgive us if we do that. You know, why is it hard to find words? Why, why did Paul struggle to find words to describe this gift? Well, before we dive into that, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for a season of time where we reflect together about what you did in sending your son Jesus to earth. And God, would you shake us out of the fog of taking this gift for granted? Shake us out of this place of complacency around the greatest gift ever given to us, the greatest gift that ever will be given to us, and help us to perceive just a little bit this morning the magnitude of what you did for us. This we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk this morning about four things that are ours because of this indescribable gift. Uh, when someone puts their faith in Jesus, when somebody decides to follow him, when somebody surrenders themselves to, to Jesus and his lordship, these four things are theirs. They're just kind of part and parcel of this indescribable gift. And I'm just going to mention them to you, all four. You could actually get up and leave right after I mention these unless you want to hear me explain them. But this is the sum and substance of the message. Four aspects of this, this indescribable gift. The first is unending peace. And the second is unstoppable power. And the third is unwavering love. And the fourth is unending life. You see, each of these things is not only needful, they are also priceless beyond compare with anything else. Let's dive into the first one, the first one, unending peace. You know, Jesus coming, his life and his death and his resurrection are frankly all about peace. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words. He said, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor. And he is mighty God. And he is everlasting father. And he is and prince of peace. How is Jesus the prince of peace? Why is he given that name? 
Well, I would suggest that first and most importantly, because of what he does to, to make, to secure, to create a people for God, for himself. You see, a, a peacemaker is needed for that task. And here's why. You see, our God is perfectly holy. And that means he's separated from sin. Uh, our God is also perfectly righteous, and that suggests that everything that our God does is good and always good. And our God is also just, perfectly just. That means he punishes and he rewards every deed, good or evil. And quite surprisingly, our God is a covenanting God. This is a term familiar to us. We've mentioned this many times. Our God is a promise-making God. He enters into binding uh, relationship with us, much like a, a marriage contract, in fact, where we make promises. The Bible actually uses this analogy repeatedly that God is our husband, the church's husband. Uh, the Bible uh, says that this analogy can help us understand God's love and God's care and God's constant provision for us. In the prophet Isaiah, we are told this, for your maker is your husband and the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. That's our husband. And that makes us, just like Israel, married to God, the bride, uh, if you will, of God. And that is really quite amazing and also wonderful, except that God says, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. Ouch. And that was the situation then, and that is the situation today. And that is a really huge problem. You see, we are not a good wife. We are not faithful. We are not loving. We are not grateful, we are not kind, we are not good toward God, our husband. And therefore God, think with me, God, just like a spurned spouse, a spurned husband in this case, God is jealous and God is angry. That's what the Bible tells us. Uh, God says in Ezekiel 16, you adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband guilty. You see, this is why the wrath of God was poured out on Israel. When you read your Old Testament, there's much of it that we read, we scratch our head and we're like, wow, wow, God is giving it to Israel. And one of the ways he gave it to both the northern and southern kingdoms in punishing them for their adultery was something called exile. Much of the Old Testament is leading up to and, and then concludes in the, the exile of God's people, northern kingdom to the Assyrians, southern Southern kingdom to the Babylonians. This is God's punishment. It's, it's God's uh, discipline. And this is why they and we need very badly a prince of peace. Someone to bring peace between us and almighty God, the husband to whom we have been unfaithful. 
And so the Apostle Paul, we studied this. Daniel was, is leading us through the book of Romans. And, you know, you get to chapter 5. and Paul gets pretty excited, you know, really. Uh, he, he's, he's excited when he reflects on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And in chapter 5, Paul says, since we have now been justified by his blood. That whole word justification, you know, has a lot to do with the idea of peace, bringing peace, bringing restoration, bringing payment. You see, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? Well, from God's wrath through him, through Jesus. Because that, again, is what Jesus' life and death and resurrection do. He saves us from the wrath of God, God's righteous jealous anger. The prophet Isaiah says, but he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That salvation is our peace with God. God Almighty, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit enacted a plan to pay for our sin and give us righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. That is how much our God loves his people. To enact a plan, a plan so costly to him, you see, his plan was sending his son to die in our place because of what Jesus did. We now know we are forgiven. We are saved. We are now a beautiful bride for Jesus. Nothing can snatch us out of our husband's hands. John says uh, in describing that at the very end of all things, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And that's the end. That's when the earthly story as we know it now is over. And that's what will happen when Jesus returns. And the great judgment has now already happened. And Jesus' followers are made to be a perfectly beautiful bride at peace with their husband for all eternity. And that is the main benefit right there of Jesus' indescribable gift, of Jesus being a prince of peace. Now, it's true there are other kinds of peace that come with this. Things like peace of mind, things like peace in the midst of personal circumstances. Jesus did say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, Jesus does, does give us a peace that passes understanding when we trust him and walk with him and do life with him. Jesus, of course, gave peace to Peter when Peter was on trial and he gave peace to Paul many times when Paul was in jail and he gave peace to Stephen even while Stephen was being stoned to death. He gave peace to his mother Mary who, of course, lost her son and he gives peace to people today, you and I. These are some of the side benefits, if you will, of knowing the Prince of Peace. Benefits of 
being made all right with Almighty God. Because you see, we are assured that our Almighty God, our husband, he's got it. Whatever it is, whether it's elections or pandemics or finances or children or relationships, he's got it. He is in control. That's what Paul meant when he described Jesus. He said he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's Jesus, the one who's in total control. That Jesus loves you. And that's why you and I, we can be at peace. Now, another thing that makes Jesus coming, Jesus' gift so indescribable is this thing I mentioned, unstoppable power. Jesus not only works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I mean, that's out there in the world. But know this too. Jesus also has power to work in here in me and, and in you. And that's a very messy world too, is it not? Uh, how often have you heard someone say, or maybe you've said something like this, man, I, I wish I could just change some of my habits, the, the way I eat, the way I drink, the way I lose my temper. If I could just learn to control my tongue, if I could just stop this compulsive buying, this gambling that's become an addiction, if, if I could just stop looking at porn, if I could just stop loving my spouse uh, poorly, not sacrificially, if I could just learn to parent with more patience, if I just had the discipline, the willpower, the perseverance to change me, life could be so much better. And that's kind of ironic that we say or that we think those kinds of things because we are, of course, a nation and we are a people acquainted with power, are we not? I mean, we have industrial power and economic power and political power and military power, technological power, uh, power in our uh, science of medicine, power with uh, just science itself. We have educational power and knowledge and all these things, but in spite of all that power, we still lack what's needed just to change ourselves. We still lack what's needed just to mend our ways. We still lack what's needed just to live a life that Jesus described as abundant. And I would argue that's the power we all really want and need. Very first sermon I ever preached was from a text in John chapter 13. And there in John 13, the situation is described. It says it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own, that is his disciples, his, his people, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Understand, this is a very pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry right here. Something important 
is about to understand because Jesus now wanted to show his disciples the full extent of their love and he had all the power imaginable to do whatever he wanted to do. And what he does is something that gods and kings and powerful people never do. Jesus is going to use his power to serve, even to die for others. In this text, specifically, he washes the disciples' feet. You remember that? They don't understand really what he's up to. He's painting them a picture, not just of what he's been doing for three years, but what he's about to do, which is die for them, serve them ultimately. Jesus is going to use his power sacrificially. That is how he shows them the full extent of his love. You see, in that moment, I mean, let's think about this. Jesus had power over everything, power over evil spirits. He had power over wind and water, power, you recall, over fish and bread. Remember, he multiplied it. He had power over sickness and death. He also had power over sin and death. And he uses that power to serve and save people who desperately need saving. People who decidedly don't deserve it. It was a little later when Jesus was standing before Pilate that the issue of power came up again. Jesus had been arrested. He's being questioned there. He's just been questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, you recall. And, and now he's been taken to Pilate and the Jewish leaders want Jesus to be crucified. That's what they're asking Pilate to do. And Pilate is questioning Jesus and he wants him to tell him where he came from. Uh, but Jesus was just remaining silent. He wasn't responding back. And Pilate says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you. And Jesus, I imagine with real calm, because we're not given that he's, we're not given any indication that he's all emotional or frightened here. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You get what he's saying? He's saying the only power you have, Pilate, is power that the Father, my Father, my Heavenly Father who's in control gives you to accomplish his will. Now, somewhat ironically, just an aside, you know, it was only a couple of years later, Pilate was recalled back to Rome and... Um, he was accused of abusing his power. That's what we're told. And he was ordered by Emperor Caligula to kill himself. And he did. Point being, Pilate really had no power. But Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, understand are the seat and source of all power and authority. And the amazing thing is when you follow Jesus, when you trust him, when you obey him and his word, well, guess what? You receive power, real spiritual power. Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. 
On another occasion, just as he was about to ascend to the Father, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power to be used for what? Well, for witness, for one, but also power to serve, power to become more like Jesus himself. That's called sanctification, and all of that equals change, a change that can happen in us. Power to be more like Jesus, power to control a temper, power to break destructive habits, power to repair broken relationships, power to love people who do not deserve to be loved, power to love them sacrificially exactly the way Jesus loves you. That's power, friends. This is the power that we frankly all desperately need. The Apostle Paul said this, he said, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's power. That's wow, <laughs> because that's real power, friends. That is the power to change as a person. Some of you probably could line up here and, and grab a mic and you could share how that power has worked in your life, maybe for some to, to save a marriage or, or maybe for others to parent in a, an impossible situation or uh, maybe power saved you from a destructive habit or addiction. Maybe Jesus' power restored your health or it saved you from living a meaningless, pointless, purely self-centered life. We need to be saved from that. You see, friends, by Jesus connecting us to our maker, to our heavenly father, we are set on a path to be who we are really meant to be and to do the things we were really meant to do. And that is what Jesus' power does. And that is why his gift is indescribably good. It gives us unending peace and it gives us unstoppable power. Now, it, it gives us these last two things I mentioned as well, unwavering love and unending life. It's been my observation that as people get older and your, your nest is empty, the kids are gone and careers are winding down, that all too often there's a certain malaise that sets in. And they start to think about things they, they never used to think about. Life was too busy to think about them, but now suddenly there's time. They start to reflect on things like marriage or kids or accomplishments or lack thereof or friends. How many, how few. And, and unfortunately, many times as we do this, we realize, you know, the marriage isn't that healthy, hasn't been in a long time. Some even begin to wonder if they still love the person that they've been living with all these years. How and where did the love just sort of drain out of my relationship? Others can reach retirement age only to realize that they have no serious or significant friendships, none. 
All their friendships were job-related or hobby-related or perhaps recreationally determined, right? And now that the job is gone and hobbies and recreational pursuits change, well, so do friends and friendships. And they're gone too. And maybe even the few good friends that they had have moved on or passed away or something happened and things soured. And they begin to realize that they may have spent their, their lives dedicated, dedicated to things that don't last and quite honestly don't matter. At least not as much as loving people matters or as much as serving people matters or as much as connecting with people matters. I'll tell you what, when this happens, friends, a person finds themselves feeling incredibly alone because that's not who a person is supposed to be. A person, says Jesus, is supposed to be primarily two things, someone who loves God and someone who loves their neighbor or loves people, connects with people. That's not very complicated, but it's extremely difficult to do well. Jesus put it this way, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the point is, love and connection, friends, that's it. What is the meaning of life? Well, that's it right there. That's why we are here. That is the meaning of life. Love God. Honor him, get to know him, never stop getting to know him better. Treasure him, obey him, serve him, honor him, love your spouse, love your kids, love your friends, love your co-workers, love your enemies. That's why we're here. But we are very bad at this. Why? Because we mostly love ourselves. That's why. And this is precisely why we so desperately need God's unwavering love for us. You see, we were made for this. To be connected to God in relationship with God is what we are made for. When we are in relationship with God, well, guess what? That is what changes us. That is what reorients us. That is what, what deals with the problems that are so broken within us. God says when we are connected to him, in fact, we are given a new heart. It's a beautiful picture. In Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and your heart of flesh. You see, this new heart changes everything about us. We become increasingly aware of God's love and God's truth and God's goodness and God's forgiveness and God's provision and God's presence. And the result is that in time, it begins to leak out of us and we start actually loving and caring about other people. And we do that with a love that surprises even us. A patience and tolerance we didn't use to know. A mercy and a grace that doesn't come naturally. A kindness and a goodness we never had before. You see, we love because he first loved us. And others notice. 
And when they do, guess what? New friendships begin and grow. And old rifts get repaired and tired marriages get renewed and they can be refreshed. And life starts to be about what it's supposed to be about, which is connection. It's relationship, loving God and loving each other. And not just now, but forever, forever, right on into eternity. And that's the last little bit of this indescribable gift that we've been talking about. Unending life, eternal life. The coming of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection is the only thing that actually overcomes death. The only thing. Jesus is the one thing that can give a person hope and courage to face death completely without fear. In my years of ministry, one of the things that I've observed is that many people, when actually faced with the prospect of death, become very, very fearful. Death is the enemy we can't defeat. It's the enemy we cannot run from. I don't care what creams or salves you have. Death is going to get you. Death is inevitable. And so many people fear it. (laughs) One of the ways we handle this is we refuse to think about it. Not me, not now, hopefully not ever. It's hard not to think about it, though, lately, isn't it? Every night, if you watch the news, it's COVID-19, it's death tolls, it's numbers of infections. And even as we speak, our nation and the world is looking to the miracle of modern medicine to provide us with a, a saving grace, a vaccine. But vaccine or no vaccine, COVID or no COVID, truth is, we are all going to die. If not today, then tomorrow. Merry Christmas. You know, the fact is the only solution that there is for the problem of death is Christmas. It's that Jesus has come and Jesus has done something about this. I've, I've actually seen the power of Jesus to overcome the fear of death many times in my years of ministry. I've had the privilege to talk to folks facing death. Death is imminent. And they are trusting in Jesus. And I've got to tell you, that trust gave them what we're talking about this morning. It gave them unending peace. Even though they're staring at an enemy they can't overcome, but they know Jesus, their Savior, their husband has. It gave them unstoppable power, power to be somebody they're not by the grace of God. It gave them the power, uh, unwavering love to understand and to embrace a love they know will be theirs right on into eternity. And it gave them the certain hope of unending life that they needed to face death and to do so without fear. Jesus' followers believe what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he said, death has been swallowed up in victory. That's a completely stupid thing to say if it's not true. Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, death is not really all that bad. Not if you follow Jesus. It's simply what transports the Jesus follower into the presence of their loving father. And so if you're thinking correctly, there's really no reason for fear. 
Jesus Christ captured and conquered the enemy. He has overcome death once and for all for his people. And in doing so, he gives us the promise of eternal life. This whole thing, everything we're talking about this morning is a gift indescribable because of the magnitude of the gift. It's a gift we don't pay for. It's a gift we don't deserve. It's a gift we can't earn. We just receive it. And we celebrate it. And we're grateful for it. It's the gift that's before us on this table. Jesus wants us to contemplate and to remember this gift. That's what this sacrament that we call the Lord's table communion is all about. Remembering, embracing, believing, holding on to these truths that give us what we need. When Jesus was in the upper room, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, this is something no God has ever done before. To sacrificially die for his people, to lay down his power, his glory, his privileges, to die for us. Jesus in the upper room took the wine, the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. That new covenant is a marriage covenant. It's a covenant that seals the relationship that we have with Almighty God because God's cup of wrath is poured out upon Jesus and not us. We're given so many wonderful promises, promises of peace, promises of power, promises of unwavering love and promises of eternal life. That's what's in the covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood shed for many for the remission of sin. And we invite you to come to this table this morning if you know Jesus. That's what's vitally important. This is a family meal. Jesus is the host. And Jesus hasn't given me one of these little cups, so I'm gonna have to grab one, sorry. Just kidding, Jesus. Um, and that's what makes this so meaningful. It, this is a somber, sober meal because of who provided it and how he provided it. But it's also a meal of celebration because of all the promises. So if you know Jesus as your savior, we invite you to join with us in this sacrament. You could tear off the top uh, little lid there and you have a wafer and when you've done that this wafer is the body of Jesus Christ broken for you take and eat thank you Jesus for your broken body thank you for the spiritual nourishment is ours in this meal Thank you. Take and 
remove the, the next little cover. And when you have, take and drink. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood shed for us for the remission of sin. Thank you for this gift, indescribable. Amen.